0: Hi, everyone. This is Sandy Vartharaja, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, we interview Dan Trigub, who leads Uber Health. Uber Health is Uber's non-emergency medical transportation, or NEMT, bid. The small team plans to double in size in 2020 and heralds a renewed investment in the multi-billion dollar NEMT market in the U.S. Before Uber, Dan Trigab spent about two and a half years at Lyft as the regional vice president of strategic partnerships focused on healthcare. Prior to that, he spent time working in business development at eBay and founded several companies including Open Placement, a care coordination platform allowing hospital professionals to connect with post-acute care providers for their patients at the moment of discharge. Hope you enjoy the episode. Well, thanks for joining us, Dan. Thank you for having me. Super important question for you. I know you're a native East Coaster from New Jersey, but I've lived in the Bay Area for quite some time now. When you think about East Coast versus West Coast, where do you land?
1: So for me, I definitely say the left coast is the best coast. And it's it's, it's hard to say that because I miss New York. New York's a great place, but I absolutely love living in the Bay Area. Love the weather. Don't miss the snow. And great place to be here in Silicon Valley.
0: I know that you've had a really interesting career starting out in consulting, banking, then moving on to starting your own company, then eBay, and now several different marketplace businesses. So why make the leap in the early stages of your career to becoming an entrepreneur?
1: So a couple of things on, on that front. Banking, And consulting helped build a really good foundation for me in terms of my skill sets and certainly being an Excel and PowerPoint monkey, uh, as some might say. I worked with a long term acute care hospital, spent a lot of late hours working with them, selling their business to Kindred Healthcare in the long term acute care space. I worked with a company called Place for Mom, which is one of the largest online lead gen companies for elder care. But at the end of the day, I wanted to be on the other side of the table. I was selling other people's companies who were either my age, sometimes younger. And I really had that passion for wanting to be an operator and build. Something from scratch through all of this. My wife's family, who I've known for 15 years plus, my father-in-law runs one of the largest home care businesses here in the Bay Area, and he's been doing it for over 15 years. So one way or another, I had a lot of I touched healthcare quite a bit. And the other thing is my background in terms of my family. So I'm first-generation American. My entire family are immigrants from the former Soviet Union, and I think that immigrant mentality and just you know working hard. I really wanted to own my own destiny, and certainly that's what led me to become an entrepreneur and went off to do my own startup called Open Placement before making my way to a place like Uber.
0: I am also a first-generation American, so I can relate to your parents kind of inspiring, being able to live out your own destiny every day. Another question I'm interested in is then your transition from being an entrepreneur to then working at eBay, which is, I think, at the stage you joined it, certainly not a startup. So why the leap from kind of owning your own destiny to then joining a massive company?
1: So I have to be careful what I say. Hopefully there's not too many people who... uh, who work currently at eBay listening to this but actually it was one of the biggest career mistakes of my of my life a person who I was good friends with convinced me to come over to eBay and work for his team he only was there for just a few months and he left a big part of my switch I didn't really feel that mission-driven. At the end of the day, we were just selling products online in the e-commerce platform, and I really wasn't passionate about what I was doing there. I think the one story that sums it up of why I wanted to leave is I would walk around the eBay offices and I'd see Amazon boxes everywhere. That was the writing on the wall. Then I was fortunate enough during that part of my career to meet who was at the time the chief business officer of Lyft and basically approached me and said, hey, we're building a healthcare organization here within this rideshare company. I think you should come over here and explore what we're doing. And that's how I ended up at lift
0: a great segue into my next question around your experience generally building marketplace businesses. Seems like there are a ton of healthcare businesses today aiming to better connect supply to demand. And I'm curious what advice you might give to those kinds of startups. So
1: I think generally speaking, I think scale is everything. How I like to think about when I come to work every day, there's a lot of fuel to the fire here at a place like Uber. Uh, When you think about our reach, our scale, trying to really disrupt non-emergency medical transportation, we, we really have the infrastructure to make that happen. And I think when I work at open placement, or I've you know helped advise smaller startups, I think they're not always focused on the right thing. What I mean by that, early stage startups, revenue is everything and really proving that there's a viable model and showing that you can scale with more cash, more investment over time. You know, I'd always encourage people try not to raise money. The longer you can go without raising capital, the better off you'll be. And being able to show revenue is, is extremely important.
0: It feels kind of like a chicken and egg problem with marketplaces. Do you start with supply you start with demand. Which one do you think would have been the right choice with open placement? So
1: I think from our side, and you know, it was nice when I came to a place like Uber, I didn't really have to worry about this. We already had 4 million plus driver partners on the road. But really, I think in the early stages, especially with open placement, and, and just for your listeners, open placement was basically hotels.com for post-acute care. My mom just had hip replacement at Stanford Hospital. The old way was, here's a piece of paper. Good luck to you with a couple of options for skilled nursing care or assisted living, independently, whatever it might be. Family looks at it who's good, who's bad, who's got a high Medicare rating, who takes my insurance, nobody would know. It was very antiquated. So for us, it was really building the supply with that and having a starting base where people can go and look and already have all those options there at their fingertips really drove the demand for more and more healthcare providers, which we focused on wanting to sign up and use the tool. And we got pretty scrappy and creative in building that supply. A lot of this information was public and public databases and scraping it and basically putting it up on our platform where... Every post acute care provider was essentially there, but then we would go to them and have them claim their profile and then obviously pay for that and then put more uh, more information beyond just a basic standard profile.
0: So shifting a little bit to uh, the NEMT market or the non-emergency medical transportation market, you've said in the past that it's not a winner-take-all market. What do you mean by that?
1: I was one of the first early hires of Lyft in their healthcare business, and we were certainly ahead of other players in the space at the time. And now, fast forward to me here at, at Uber and the growth of Uber Health, I think choice is power for healthcare providers, for patients, for health plan members, and ultimately, choice creates. The best ETAs, the best price, the best service levels. And frankly, you can't expect to be absolutely exclusive to any of these key players in the space. Again, it's not a winner take all market. Non emergency medical transportation, depending on how you add everything up, is a $15 billion market that we firmly believe in. When you look at just the Medicaid segment for non emergency medical transportation, it's over $4 billion. And I'd like to believe, you know, here at Uber, we have the scale, we have the reach, that we're very well positioned to continue to grow within that segment.
0: I'd love to dive more into Uber Health now because it seems like you all have a lot of really interesting strategic advantages. Namely, Uber has the biggest ride sharing supply of drivers in the country. You're also the largest international ride sharing company and you own every single market that you operate in. And also Uber as a company is very diversified. Not only does it offer rides, it also has Eats, it has freight, it has Uber for business under which Uber Health falls. You have an advanced technologies group, a lot of different business verticals. And so I think being able to offer several services in a market can really augment your marketplace to your point and attract more supply than demand and build that flywheel. For our listeners, transportation and security is a really big barrier to accessing care and affects nearly 4 million people across the U.S. annually. And oftentimes, not having access to a ride can lead to avoiding care altogether until circumstances are much more dire, not only clinically, but also from a financial perspective. Now, Dan, I'm curious, the typical Uber rider looks like you or me, maybe millennial, Gen X, smartphone savvy, urban, well-educated, maybe wearing a Patagonia vest. I don't think that that's the same profile of someone who would benefit from an NEMT service, someone who might be lower income on Medicaid or older on a Medicare or Medicare Advantage plan. So how does the <laughs> that profile difference impact how you think about the product and the uber health business
1: so it has a huge impact and i think you're absolutely right in 2009 when uber started i don't think anyone could ever imagine the healthcare use case for the product and i think you know i've been at this intersection of rideshare and healthcare for close to four years now you know four years ago when i was in conversations like this the natural gut reaction was wait a second uber is only taking a millennial to a bar on a friday night that's what you were known for and that's what you do but it couldn't be further from the truth part of my mission here at uber is to really continue to advocate internally and externally and make sure we have the right product for this segment of our population. The people who benefit the most from non-emergency medical transportation are our elderly, our low income, our underserved populations. They don't have sometimes even a smartphone and they certainly don't have an Uber account. So for us, we took a step back a couple of years ago when Uber Health first started and we really tried to understand what our customers, what our partners in healthcare truly need and how do we build a solution where the person taking the ride does not have to be reliant on a smartphone phone doesn't have to have an Uber account. And that's exactly why we built our platform where any third party, whether it's a health plan administrator or a hospital professional, can order a ride on behalf of the people they care for. And that ultimate passenger, they don't need to know anything about Uber. Certainly, if they have a phone that can receive a standard SMS text message, they'll get notifications and information about the ride. But again, it was really designed for this population where ultimately they they don't know anything about Uber for the most part.
0: How do you sell this use case to a health plan administrator?
1: So, believe it or not, there's actually not that much selling. If you go to most hospitals across the country, spend millions of dollars a year on taxi voucher programs and paying out of pocket for transportation. They've all identified the ROI of getting somebody out of that hospital bed quicker so they can fill it faster with that next patient. And they absolutely are willing to cover that cost, which many hospitals do today. The other use case, frankly, with hospitals is parking and infrastructure is a huge pain point at most hospitals. Most parking spots are utilized by staff and employees, let alone patients and family members. we're seeing more and more hospitals do by leveraging Uber Health. They're encouraging their staff and employees to use Uber to get that last mile to work or travel in between treatment centers. What you've seen is clinicians are more productive. They sit in the backseat of an Uber, they take notes, do phone calls, and they don't have to worry about all the headaches and hassles of vehicle ownership. The other thing is we help reduce waste fraud and abuse because they're able to now track the entire ride through our portal. And then finally, we've seen higher NPS scores or higher patient satisfaction scores with those hospitals that offer Uber Health versus other forms of transportation.
0: Last October, you announced your Cerner integration, and this gives you access to the more than 27,000 facilities that are live on the Cerner EMR. Obviously, there are economies of scale by partnering with the software layer versus the providers, but is this going to be a big focus area for Uber Health moving forward?
1: Deeper API integrations is the future of our business. As a large health system reminds me every day, TTT, things take time. When you're working with large organizations like Cerner and others in the EHR space, uh, that's really where the opportunity is, is embedding ourselves within those day-to-day workflows.
0: So Uber Health started off by building up its hospital or provider business. I know that you partner with over a thousand hospitals all over the country, including BayCare in Florida, MedStar in DC. Can you walk through how you've been able to add value to those partners?
1: BayCare, perfect example. They've been using our Uber Health dashboard. And as I like to say it, their case managers are on a swivel chair. They're in the Uber Health dashboard and they swivel over to Cerner, which they use every single day. So by us integrating into Cerner, we reduce that need for that swivel chair. We make it very streamlined with their workflows. We can pull information from the EMR, like the patient name, pickup and drop off location. We can share data back to the EMR about the ride that they can help visualize for the hospital. And what we're also finding is more and more payers are willing to cover the cost of these rides. So we actually work with Florida Blue and they've actually put up money and are covering the cost of these rides on behalf of BayCare.
0: That's a huge win because- To your point, a lot of these hospitals are paying out of pocket. These services aren't necessarily reimbursable when you're partnering with the provider. Have you done any studies to attribute your ridership data back to clinical outcomes?
1: We are actively doing more and more research with our partners, especially on the provider side. So there has been a lot of data put out. With Boston Medical Center, we saw concrete numbers around reducing the transportation cost. Their their transportation budget went 40% further. We've seen a lot of data around reducing no-shows and missed appointments. In terms of clinical outcomes, in the grand scheme of things, we've only been live for just under two years now. We now do all the rides for CareMore, which is a Medicare Advantage plan in Southern California. I think there's a lot more to come on clinical outcome side.
0: What about your partnership with Adams Clinical and clinical trials? I never realized there was a a use case to be had for ride sharing at NEMT there.
1: Generally speaking, a clinical trial is only as good as that patient showing up to take their meds. So Within the industry, patient retention and recruitment is a major pain point. So what we've done is is we've worked with trial sites directly like Adams Clinical, but we've also started to do a lot more work with pharma companies directly and CROs who coordinate the trials on behalf of those pharma companies. And a lot of times they may already be covering the cost of transportation and what they find is our solutions are way more cost effective or they're now incorporating that as a benefit to get those people to come to those trial sites. Some of these people live in transportation deserts. They rely on bus or train to get them to that site, And a lot of times, too, these people have a medical device or sometimes a medical bag that they have to carry with them to that trial site. And a lot of times they feel embarrassed or they don't want to get into a bus with a any sort of device. And they find that having a safe, friendly, clean vehicle to come pick them up really makes a big difference for them. So that's an area that we're doing a lot of work in and we see a continued opportunity for growth, especially on a global scale uh, beyond just here in the U.S.
0: Another big segment you've been going after in the last year is NEMT brokers. In the last year, you've started partnering with these third-party brokers, such as American Logistics, that connects riders to different types of rides, and oftentimes, plan state Medicaid agencies, they're outsourcing this NEMT function to brokers. Are these brokers really open to partnering with Uber? Do they see you as a threat or more as a true value-adding partner to them?
1: There's a handful of very strategic traditional NEMT brokers that are currently managing that benefit. And they do a lot of things today that Uber is not well-equipped to do when it comes to managing that transportation benefit on behalf of a plan. 80% 80% of the $4 billion that's spent on NEMT is curb to curb transportation. And historically, they're using traditional livery and transportation providers, but they've all identified that nobody has the reach and scale that an organization like Uber has today with over 4 million drivers on the road. What we can do in terms of reducing the cost, reducing the waste, fraud, and abuse, and providing a better experience, they all have identified that wanting to partner with us uh, certainly makes a lot of sense within their workflows. And certainly it takes time to integrate with these, with their systems. There are legacy systems, legacy organizations that have been around for a long time. But certainly we see that as the future of our growth, especially for the Medicaid and Medicare populations.
0: I myself was surfing around on some of the websites for the smaller regional brokers and noticed a lot of clip art and clearly no presence of automated technology. And so it's awesome that Uber is able to partner with them and provide value-adding technology. What percent of rides brokered through these NEMT brokers is now delivered through Uber? So taking the American Logistics Partnership, for example, what percent of their rides are now fulfilled by Uber Health versus some of their other traditional transportation providers?
1: What I can say, it's a growing percentage and more and more rides are being done by Uber Health and TNCs in general. The one challenge, especially in the Medicaid space, Medicare Advantage is very unique. Where many plans and CMS has put out guidance that they can offer TNCs as a form of non-emergency medical transportation. On the Medicaid side, the regs were written in a world before rideshare ever existed, so the regs are still not as TNC friendly as we would like. But that is changing. What we've seen is states like Florida, Texas, Arizona, and others have changed regs to be more TNC friendly on the Medicaid side. And I think as we see more and more states adopt Uber Health for non-emergency medical transportation, those numbers are only going to exponentially grow over time. So yeah, I think these legacy organizations certainly were never equipped or never really understood rideshare. And now they're really making it part of their workflows.
0: Walk us through the rationale behind the partnership with Ride Health. The founder is also a Penn alum we've spoken with in the past.
1: Yeah. So we love Imran and the Ride Health team. Now they provide additional support. They provide a lot more bells and whistles for healthcare providers when it comes to things like trip adjudication, when it comes to things like billing to the payer directly, all the eligibility files they can manage and provide that additional operational wherewithal. And by us partnering with organizations like Ride Health, we're able to provide a a much more valuable solution to a payer and go in together and really, you know, essentially co-sell and show the value of our combined relationship.
0: Diving a little bit more into business model and reimbursement mechanisms, you highlighted that Medicare Advantage plans will now cover NEMT as a supplemental benefit, which is a big win but for Medicaid, there are often 50 different types of regulatory frameworks that you have to manage. How are you thinking about partnering directly with some state Medicaid agencies versus some of the bigger MA carriers like a Healthcare or an Aetna?
1: Well, I think certainly on the, on the Medicare Advantage side, it's a lot easier. And especially around open enrollment time period, many of them are looking to incorporate this transportation benefit and use it as a selling point during that open enrollment process. And we see a lot of them really diving headfirst into leveraging Uber Health for their for their member base. On the Medicaid side, to your point, it's extremely complicated. It's state by state. And we have an amazing team here, Sarah Fenn, who leads all our regulatory work in this space. We spend a lot of time on the Hill and meeting with folks at CMS and HHS and really helping to push guidance to the states. Uh, and we've seen many states very forward thinking around things like Rideshare. So Jamie Snyder, who's the state Medicaid director in Arizona, has been very forward-thinking around leveraging uh, Uber Health. We now do the vast majority of Medicaid rides being done by TNCs today. There was actually a recent article, about 15% of all Medicaid trips in Arizona are now done by rideshare, and that number is only growing. It goes back to that point I made earlier. When Uber started in 2009, there were maybe only a few cities and states that recognized TNCs as a legal viable form of transportation. Fast forward to 2020, pretty much every city and state has regs passed for TNCs. The same thing we feel is going to happen on the healthcare front. So when CMS put out these regs for transportation, they could have never imagined a model like Rideshare. And now what we're seeing is states really coming around and changing these regs to be more TNC friendly. As Some of the states I mentioned earlier, like Florida and Texas and others, Arizona, I think it's just a matter of time as more and more states will adopt. And that's a big area of focus for us.
0: At a broad level, are there markets that Uber Health is considering attractive that otherwise wouldn't look so attractive from a pure ride-sharing perspective?
1: So in the U.S., Uber Health operates anywhere where Uber has service today. There's a growing need in more rural populations, without doubt. Today, over 80% of the U.S. population can open up the Uber app and request a ride, and we have really strong coverage. And on average, globally, our ETAs are three to five minutes from when you open up the app to when a driver is there, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Now, certainly in the frontier states and more rural areas, we don't have great coverage today. That said, in the markets, in those rural markets, a lot of times we are better than other alternatives. So for us, we want to continue to grow our platform. And that's really the mission and job of our core central ops team and a lot of the great work that they're doing there to grow our driver supply. The truth is, though, a lot of times our drivers live in these rural markets, but they're driving to the big cities where the demand is. So we can also do a lot of things where we can message and communicate to drivers in the more rural markets if we're going to launch a health plan or a a rural hospital network where we know We don't have great supply to meet their demand today. We can message and we can create incentives for drivers to be in those more rural areas. And certainly no other company without our scale and reach can really have that.
0: Obviously, you spent two and a half years at Lyft as one of the early employees of their healthcare division and and made the leap to lead up Uber's healthcare team. What was the reason behind that jump and what do you see as Uber's strategic advantages in the healthcare space?
1: Certainly a question I get a lot, and I think a very fair question. I think it was a couple things. One is I truly believe that there was no other company like Uber that had the reach and scale that we have. And I think most people, especially if you're on the West Coast and the East Coast, you kind of figure, oh, it's, you know, 50-50 Lyft and Uber. We are without doubt the category position leader in all the markets that we operate in. And certainly healthcare is not just a U.S. problem. You know, right now, Uber Health is very focused in the U.S., but we do have ambitions to launch in other countries in the near future. The other thing is we we can do a lot more than just move people. And what we're seeing is many health plans are now paying for meal and grocery delivery for those that they care for. Uber has the largest meal delivery platform in the world outside of China with Uber Eats. And it really intrigued me to leverage those solutions to better serve our patient populations beyond just even getting them to the care they need. When I also think about things like DME and pharmaceutical delivery, I think we have the logistics and we have that platform where we really can feed that through. And then finally, I think it was the team and being able to build a team from the early days from scratch. I'm very proud of the team we've built here. So we've recently brought in folks from places like McKinsey Healthcare, Optum, United Healthcare, Oscar Health. Our head of legal worked at McKesson for 17 plus years. Our head of compliance comes from OCR and Centene. So just an amazing deep bench of professionals that I think truly understand the industry. And it's been a joy to help kind of build it up when I joined the organization. And I think there's a lot more opportunity.
0: When you think about team at Uber Health. I know that you all are planning to double in size in 2020. What kinds of skill sets are you prioritizing? You mentioned you're proud of the team you've built today, having deep healthcare industry expertise. So walk me through the trade-off between having tech expertise and working at a tech company versus knowing the industry well. What are you looking for?
1: Well, we're laser focused on right now is growing our partnerships, growing our deep integrations that we talked about earlier these deep api partnerships and really people who understand how the industry works who are the right stakeholders to go to and then how do we scale efficiently whether it's through a channel partner or going direct to a provider i think people who understand the nuances of the industry and really being able to talk to talk understand what are the needs and pain points of those that we uh, that we partner with on the tech side, we have an amazing team of engineers and product professionals who come from healthcare organizations who also come from core Uber in the early days and really know how our systems work. And it's certainly the, the cross-functional bench, right? So folks understand the compliance, the legal, the regulatory side of the business uh, is also extremely important and, and continue to grow that bench is, is something that is a big focus of ours.
0: So obviously a lot of potential for Uber Health, you all could leverage Uber Eats and become the largest Meals on Wheels company across the US. You can deliver DME and prescriptions. How are you thinking about what's next for Uber Health in the next six months and then the next five years?
1: Like I said, it's still early days here within Uber, but we've had a lot of great success. If you listen to our first earnings call, Dara mentioned 400% growth in our Uber health business. There's a lot of room to continue to grow, but we have to be laser focused because it's so easy to get bogged down. Next six months to a year, we're still very focused on moving people. And that's what we know we can do best. And for us, it's building these deep partnerships with traditional NEMT brokers, working with large payers. And then beyond that, in the next five plus years, it's really international expansion and really looking at other markets where we can bring our core offering markets where we have a great category position lead in rideshare in general and feeding the health platform through those networks.
0: Are there any cool updates to Uber's health interface that you're planning to release in the next six months that might smooth out those partnership discussions? Stay tuned.
1: There's going to be some press in the coming weeks. Some of the nuances that are really important in healthcare. So for example, Uber today is the only rideshare platform that has in-app messaging to drivers. So when you send a note to your driver, even as a consumer, other ride share platforms, they have to open up their SMS app. And a lot of times they miss that while they're driving, or they just don't want to open up while they're literally driving to pick you up. So we're really focusing on in-app messaging for our healthcare partners. So when a healthcare professional, like a case manager at BayCare sends a note to the driver about the patient, the driver gets that within their workflow. The other thing that we've recently launched is multilingual support. So now when a hospital professional wants to message the patient about the trip and inform them that the ride is coming, that can be done in over 20 languages. The other thing is we're launching landline scheduling so everything can be done through a landline and automated voice call where that person who only has a landline does not even have a dumb a dumb phone a clamshell phone and then finally electronic pickup and drop off locations and really having these designated pickup spots for our healthcare partners. So if you go to Bay Care, a lot of times it's no different than going to a large to, to an airport where there's multiple entrances, multiple doors and really pinpointing exactly to the door level where that driver should go, where that patient should go, creating a much better experience that we believe will continue to reduce no shows and missed appointments and really enhance the experience for our healthcare partners.
0: Really, really exciting to hear what the team is up to you all have a lot of really strategic advantages that position you well in the, the healthcare NEMT space, but also more broadly thinking about food security and prescription delivery. And it seems like you all have your hands in a lot of different buckets right now. Incredible attraction very early on into the business. So thank you again.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me, Sandy. I appreciate it.